0: Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to Farm Food Facts for Wednesday, August 14th. I'm your host, Bill Lundberg. We have some exciting news starting tomorrow, August 15th. Be sure to watch the new short film from U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance, 30 Harvests, to see how farmers provide a source of healthy food while addressing environmental concerns for current and future generations. Go to usfarmersandranchers.org to watch a short film launching tomorrow. Today's episode is all about the honeybee. Later in the podcast, we'll talk with Ben King, owner of Pacific Gold Agriculture, a farmer who grows almonds and is dependent on honeybees. But first, as a senior policy director at Keystone Policy Center, Julie Shapiro creates, facilitates, and sustains strategic partnerships and collaboration and heads up their honeybee initiative. She enables common understanding and forges shared solutions to complex problems for people, land, water, and wildlife. Julie, welcome to Farm Food Facts.
1: Thanks so much. Happy to be here.
0: Honeybees support more than
1: $20
0: billion in the U.S. and Canadian agriculture every year. Faced with recent declines in honeybee health, the Keystone Policy Center brought together representatives of beekeepers, Growers, researchers, government agencies, agribusiness, conservation groups, manufacturers and brands, and other key partners. Officially convened in 2014, the Honey Bee Health Coalition is working to help to improve honeybee hive management, increase forage and nutrition for bees, control crop pests while safeguarding pollinator health, and enhance public-private outreach, communications, and education. Keystone's work has been essential in helping the coalition's diverse members find collaborative strategies to substantially improve honeybee health in North America. Julie, give us an update. Where are we today when it comes to the health and wellness of our honeybees?
1: It's a great question. And um, one of the ways that that honeybee health is tracked, in the United States at least, is through annual uh, loss surveys and winter loss surveys that look at what beekeepers at various scales are reporting as uh, the number or percentage of colonies that they lose over the winter or over the course of an entire year. Unfortunately, the the most recent uh, colony loss data from the Bee Informed Partnership suggests that the trends aren't great. Um, from April 2018 to April 2019, beekeepers across the U.S. reported losing about 40. Almost 41% of their honeybee colonies. Yeah, um, the results for winter losses were just shy of 38%, which is the highest winter loss reported since the Bee Informed Partnership started tracking this data about 13 years ago. It's about nine percentage points higher than that the survey average over that time period for winter losses. So the challenges to to beekeepers remain uh, really high. Uh, the good news is that that beekeepers tend to be quite resilient. Um, so even though we're losing these colonies every year and every winter, beekeepers are replacing them. So it's not that the total population of honeybees is going down, but the beekeepers that are working with these colonies commercially, as well as at other scales, are having to split their hives, get new queen bees, replace their colonies, and do a lot of work to keep up with those trends. Um, honeybees in the United States are not native. I should point that out. Um they are an introduced species. Um, and they're not necessarily endangered. <laughs> um, but beekeepers themselves and 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 uh, commercial beekeeping in particular, that as an industry is is somewhat of a challenge and perhaps even an endangered industry because of these losses.
0: So why has this happened? what What is it that that created this loss that just keeps on happening year after year?
1: Yeah, there's a number of factors that often combine to uh, bring challenges for honeybee health. So at the Honeybee Health Coalition, we focus on the three big ones. Um, One is pests and pathogens within the hives. So honeybees face uh, enemies like the varroa mite, uh, which um, is really common um, in colonies across the country and requires a lot of uh, monitoring and treatment. Um, the varroa might brings with it other diseases. And then there are also a number of other pest pathogens and diseases that honeybees um, face and, and that beekeepers have to deal with. So that's one category. Um, another category of, of challenges for honeybees um, is poor forage and nutrition. And so um, that is a challenge created by the fact that there are limited floral resources on the landscape for bees to go out and forage on. This is a challenge for native bees and other native pollinators as well. And we're seeing losses of those native, um, of, uh, those native, uh, wildflowers and prairie lands. So that's a challenge. Um, in addition to that, uh, beekeepers that are working at commercial scales and moving their bees across the country um, have to find ways to keep up nutrition, not just throughout the year, but also across a lot of different geographies. And so that, that's a challenge. And then the third big category is pesticide exposures. And so um, we know that farmers need uh, crop protection products to help protect their crops and their livelihood. Um, at times, and in some cases, those products can be Hazardous for bees, and particularly if um, you're not following the label or following other practices that can help minimize drift and exposure, that can create acute incidents for bees um, and uh, you know other persistent issues. Uh, for for bees as well. So those are the three Ps, pests and pathogens, uh, poor nutrition and pesticide exposure. And those are the challenges that the Honey Bee Health Coalition really tries to work on both individually and collectively.
0: So you talk about resiliency of, of the beekeepers. Um, one of the things that I'm always fascinated by is how some of these beekeepers actually are trucking, to your point um, just a moment ago, Trucking bees from different farms to different farms, especially almond farms in in California, that they have these huge beehives in in the trucks. Explain that to us a little bit.
1: Yeah, there's about two point seven million managed colonies in the United States, um, and uh, the vast majority of those, around two million, uh, give or take, go to um, almonds in California every year. Um, almonds are completely dependent on honeybees for pollination, as are a number of other uh, fruits and vegetables throughout uh, the country but but um even though there's any number of of beekeepers of all scales uh, across the country who may not be moving their bees when it comes to commercial pollination, which actually represents the vast majority of the hives or the colonies. Um, those are all ending up in California. From California, they go to other places, whether it's the Pacific Northwest or back to the East Coast um, or other places throughout the country to pollinate other fruits and vegetables. Um, It's a big undertaking and uh, it is a challenge for, for, for beekeepers, both logistically and also just from the perspective of Um, The business models that they need to create to um, be present for almonds during that brief time of year for pollination and then also um, put together their pollination and honey production plans throughout the rest of the year as well.
0: So, Julie, what would you like food retailers, the people who run supermarkets, to understand about honeybee health and what they should and could be doing?
1: Yeah. Honeybee health is a sustainability issue. I think that's what I want to emphasize more than anything else. Um, pollinator health, more broadly, is also a sustainability issue, and we know that food retailers are really interested in the sustainability of their supply chains and are actively engaged in uh, efforts to create pull and momentum throughout their supply chains to ensure that sustainable practices are being utilized. Um, sustainability is is just kind of a, a Bottom line, kind of uh, a need for anyone, right, who wants to think about operations into the future and and ensuring that the foods that customers want um, are there and are being produced in a way that is good for the people producing them as well as um, the environment. And so, um, as you think about honeybee health as a sustainability issue, I'd really encourage um, folks across the supply chain to think about how best practices for pollinators can fit into um into their own goals and also their own activities. We know that a lot of folks are focused for example on water quality or on soil health. And there are a lot of ways to stack benefits and encourage planting the pollinator habitat for example or following best practices for crop pest management and stewardship that dovetail really nicely um with with other goals other objectives. And so first think about this as a sustainability issue next look at how pollinator health and and honeybee health as a sustainability issue intersects with the things you might already be doing and be focused on and so then third um check out the honeybee health coalition we have a lot of great resources for crop producers as well as for beekeepers and you know for those who might be working for example with corn or soybean or canola growers across the country, we've got best practices that speak to crop pest control and management. We've got resources that talk about planting forage and and how to do that and how to find the right local resources to help you do that. Um, If we can start incorporating thinking around bee health and, and pollinators more broadly into the sustainability programs that a lot of folks in the supply chain are already working on, I think it would go a long way to creating awareness as well as creating really positive impacts on the ground.
0: Well, Julie, as always, a great wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us today on Farm Food Facts.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And now the news you need to know. U.S. vertical farms are rising and producing more. Several top U.S. indoor farms, stacked with plants from floor to ceiling, told Reuters that they're boosting production to a level where they'll have the capacity to supply hundreds of grocery stores. Plenty, Bowery, Arrow Farms, and 80 Acres Farms are among the young companies that see a future in salad greens and other produce grown in their vertical farms, which utilize robotics, artificial intelligence, and LED lights. The early versions of modern vertical farms first appeared about 10 years ago. But now comes the introduction of automation and data tracking in order to regulate light and water. And now they're scaling up. Plenty and others say their customized controlled lighting makes for tastier plants compared to sun-grown leaves and that they use 95% less water than conventional farms. They also do not require much land space, and they use no pesticides, making them competitive with organic farms. And because these vertical farms primarily exist in windowless buildings that can be located in urban areas, produce doesn't have to travel far to reach grocery stores. Plenty said its new farm, which they've named Tigris, can produce enough leafy greens to supply over a hundred stores, in comparison to its previous farm that only supplied three stores and a couple restaurants. But former Vertical Farm CEO Matt Matros isn't convinced that sunless farms make economic sense, saying the issue with indoor farming was that you could really only grow a couple things efficiently, namely basil and microgreens. But the problem is the world just doesn't need that much basil or microgreens. However, 80 Acres Farms in Cincinnati says it's already growing and selling both tomatoes and cucumbers, and Plenty is currently testing cherry tomatoes and strawberries in the lab. What grocers need to know is go visit these vertical farms and see how these operations, along with traditional outdoor farms, will be shaping the future of farming. It'll be interesting to see how vertical farms can increase the breadth of their crop offerings. In the meantime, here's the ag forecast for 2019-2028, the agriculture outlook for the coming decade. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations recently released joint predictions on the ag outlook for the coming decade. The report predicts that global demand for agriculture products will increase by 15% by 2028, while ag productivity growth is expected to increase a bit faster, causing the prices of the major agriculture commodities to remain at or below their current levels for the next 10 years. Alongside risks to the world ag market, such as climate change and trade tensions, these static prices will benefit low-income consumers but could put pressure on farm incomes. Another key message from the report says that farmers, in particular here in the US, will need to increase production to feed a growing population because regions experiencing rapid population growth are not those where food production can be increased sustainably. What grocers need to know is that now's the time to forge long-term relationships with farmers to ensure a stable supply for your stores. Ben grows 350 acres of almonds on farmland, which has been in his family since 1860. His brother was a California beekeeper in the 1970s, and in addition to almonds, Ben grows 850 acres of pecans and 200 acres of row crops. Ben, welcome to Farm Food Facts.
2: Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here.
0: So, Ben, as a California farmer, you've had many weather challenges over the past few years, to say the least. What's the state of agriculture there now?
2: Well, overall, I think it's generally generally good. I think the big issue um, in California... Uh, is the tariffs and how it's affecting, especially crops, in the specific, you know, almonds and the other tree nuts and other crops. Um, the, the the weather issues really is um, that we've experienced more recently uh, was probably because more due to a wet spring and how that affected pollination of our almonds.
0: So, honeybee populations in particular have been dramatically reduced, dropping by 89% between 2007 and 2016. Here in the U.S., 40% of honeybee colonies were lost last year alone. The reality is that bees play a critical role in feeding the world by pollinating the crops that feed 90% of the global population. Bees are said to be involved in the production of one out of every three bites of food that we take. Growing almonds depends on bees, and bees depend on almonds. Ben, can you explain what that relationship is all about?
2: Yeah. So, uh, so almond trees um, are are they, they do not self-pollinate, so they need to be pollinated by another tree. And you either need a some type of insect to pollinate the tree, and that can be either a native a native bee or our uh, honeybees. And honeybees are the large part of that of was needed for, for pollination. If we don't have pollinators, whether or not there'll be neither of honeybees, we won't have almonds. In the United States, um, basically three quarters of all of the bees in the United States come to California during pollination, during almond pollination.
0: And what I've seen, pictures of, I've never seen, um, you know, up close, but there's actually these 40-foot tractor trailers that, you know, shuttle the bees to California.
2: Yes, yes. There was actually at Auburn University, um, Brittany Gilbridge, who's an associate professor at the Auburn University, has done a economic outlook for the 2019 almond pollination. And she estimated that in 2019, there was 2 million colonies of, of honeybees that came to California for, for pollination, which I mentioned is about three-quarters of the total pollination. Um, and that is um, likely to be about... One point of of the two million colonies wow. total, about one point eight million comes from outside of California. The biggest portion of those of those bees actually come from the Dakotas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and Idaho. But they come from as far as Florida.
0: So I've also heard that after the almond harvest, the beehives are actually stronger than before the pollination. Why is that? Well,
2: um, it's not the harvest per se, but really the, the the, actually, the, 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 bloom. Um, so, um, you know, bees, uh, basically the bees, uh, get uh, their nutrition from either pollen or nectar. And it's tied to the annual season of, of blooming. And, and spring comes early, earliest in California. And in California, we're blessed with this Mediterranean climate, um, which is only about 2% of the world. And, but we have, um, very nice weather. We have early early bloom of all types of crops, all types of flowers, but predominantly almonds. Uh, and almonds bloom in February 15th, um, and that's the start of the bloom and it goes all the way through March. And if you can imagine, the bees, as they gear up every year, they need source of food. Almonds are a great source of food for bees. So the nectar and the pollen and since there's over um about one point two million acres bearing acres of almonds in California, it's a great set set uh, source of food so as so as you go into a year, bees have uh come out of dormancy, come through the winter. they may have been moved to California during the winter or they come uh, right before pollen, but they're actually relatively weak. they haven't had a chance to to have the nectar and the and the pollen from the flowers because we in North America, uh, the winter time is when it's harvest time and not bloom the bloom. So the bees are allowed to basically come to California and they get their first source of nutrition, mostly from almonds. And and then during that period of time, the hive strength just increases because they're getting this nutrition from almonds uh, and to some extent uh cover crops and other flowers. But uh, within that two-period time, there's a dramatic increase of be well, high weight and be high strength.
0: So, Ben, what does the coming almond crop this spring look like?
2: This uh, year, we're going to have a, a very large crop. Whether or not it'll be a record or not, we don't know. There was expectations until July that the crop was going to be uh, 2.5 billion pounds, um, and um, there was what's called a, that was based off of a subjective estimate. And then in July of each year, they do objective estimate. And uh, that was done by the USDA uh, NAS service. And that was downsized 2.2 yeah. billion pounds. So um, the expectations in industry is that maybe the objective statement is a 2.2 billion pound estimate is on the low side. But we should expect somewhere between the 2.2 and 2.6 billion pounds. Um, if it's more than 2300000000 billion, we'll be at record production.
0: That's great. So I know that you're very concerned about sustainability and sustainable tree crop production in California. What are almond farmers doing to improve soil health?
2: Yeah, so so the almond board, um, so you should know that each each almond grower pays an assessment. Um, it's been four cents. It's been either three to four cents for our pound, of our kernel pound, and that goes to the California almond board, which... I believe is actually uh, probably one of the most successful agriculture-related um, farm, uh, uh, basically associations uh, there has been, and a big part of their budget uh, is for research. And so, the Online board has been worked. It has a whole sustainability initiative on everything from carbon capture uh, to soil health to air quality, and they have several uh, initiatives in place. But They are working closely with UC Davis and and working on measuring uh, how to improve soil health in in, in almond orchards in particular. And uh, we actually are working with uh, UC Davis um, uh, soil science department and working with a PhD student who's uh, doing this part of her doctoral study and looking at how using cover crops within an almond orchard actually can improve the organic matter of, of, of soil. Um, so this is a, 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 a long process, but, the, you know, the Almond Board is making uh, significant investments in, in several sustainability initiatives and has a, a, really their future focus is, is for sustainability.
0: Very impressive. Well, Ben, thank you for joining us today on Farm Food Facts.
2: Great. Thank you very much for your time, Paul.
0: For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com under the Programs and Media tab, and visit us on Facebook at U.S. Farmers and Ranchers or on Twitter at USFRA. Until next time.